You might have been wondering, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, we've, we've moved from, from Abraham to his offspring and zeroed in on this family. But you might have wondered, as we've gone on, starting in chapter 37, and, and if you know the story, through the end of the book of Genesis, the story really focuses in on this character, Joseph. And, and we maybe just take that for granted, but it might be good to ask, like, why is the spotlight on Joseph at all? We, we, we spent so much time thinking and looking at the life of Jacob. And, and so now Jacob is, is in the promised land. He has his children, his 11 sons. He has 11 sons in the promised land with him. Why is the spotlight not on them? Why is the focus of the narrative of the book of Genesis not on Jacob and his sons that are in the promised land? It seems like that would have been the fulfillment of what God had wanted for Abraham and his offspring. His people in his land. Let's focus in on them and see what God does in and through them. But the story isn't there right now. It shifted to this favored son, Joseph. And so why did it do that? Well, God is working through Joseph through the one son out of the many sons to, to save many, as we'll see this morning, and to communicate to all the people of God for all time. So Joseph, he goes from this one who's the favored one, given a coat, to death threats from his brothers, to thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. He gets into Potiphar's house where he's blessed and is successful and even is promoted into his house to in charge of everything. Then he is unjustly thrown into prison at the accusation of Potiphar's wife. And then, as we see this morning, he's promoted again from the prison to the palace in Egypt. All along, God is very careful to to point out through His author, to point out His providential care, His providential leadership, that, that He is the one who is caring for His people, and He's using Joseph very instrumentally to care for all of His people. And why does He do this? So that we could stay, and we could stand, and we could use this author, we could say that God is trying to call His people. All the people of God that look into this story, all the people of God that read Genesis 40 and 41, would learn to trust this good and providential God who orders the entire universe and providentially does all things to care for His own people. The the issue of, of whether you're in prison or there's a famine doesn't keep back the care of God. The location, whether you're in Egypt or the promised land or the ends of the earth, doesn't hold back the the sovereignty and the providential care of God. The the one who is in the earthly ruler, whether it's Pharaoh or, or Laban or another, it does not matter, does not keep God from caring for and saving His people. That is that God is the sovereign one whose providential hand has no limits in caring for His people and making sure they're saved from this world. And so that's where we pick up in, in Genesis chapter 40. Joseph is in prison, and he's been there for a while. With no hope as a foreigner being thrown into prison. No hope of really getting out. But we know that he hasn't been alone. That God has been with him. That God has blessed him even in the prison. And this is where we pick up in chapter 40. Sometime after this, he has been sitting there for a while. Sometime after this... The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. 
And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. So Joseph is, is almost like the, the warden, in a sense, of this prison. He's put in charge of it. People are under his care. The cupbearer and the baker are, are both put into, into, into jail there. And Joseph is, is kind of taking care of them. He's over them. Now these, the cupbearer and the baker are influential people. They have really close access to Pharaoh. They're, they're preparing his food and his drink. They're, they're making sure everything is in line before it gets to him. And so they, they would have been known as, as influential people with great access to the highest one in the land, to the king. Likely they would have been people that would have had some wisdom, that would have given some advice in the court to this Pharaoh. And so they have influence and close access to Pharaoh. And we don't know what they did. Perhaps there was some sort of, of food conspiracy against Pharaoh, and he's mad at both of them and throws them both into prison. But you need to notice the breadcrumbs that the author is laying out behind him that point us to the, the providence of God and, and make us start thinking about what God is up to because it's at the same time that Joseph is in prison that these two influential people that have close access to Pharaoh are thrown in under his care. Could have been any time that this weird conspiracy with the food happened before Pharaoh and they thrown it. It's not happening at any time. It's happened when Joseph was there. They could have gone to any prison. I don't know how many prisons were in Egypt. He could have sent them to the far distance, distance lands in, in Egypt that they ruled. But he doesn't. He sends them to where Joseph is. And so you're thinking of all the events that are leading up to this. Even to let up to Joseph's time in prison. And, and you're seeing something. God, God is doing something here. And so these two are assigned to Joseph. And then it keeps going that one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream. And each dream with its own interpretation. So when Joseph came in in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams. And there is no one to interpret them. It just so happens that both the prisoners have dreams. At the same time, and they're both greatly troubled by these dreams. So under the, on the same night, under Joseph's care, they both have dreams. Once again, more breadcrumbs. Now in the ancient Near East, dreams would have been thought of as divine communication. They're almost like prophetic in nature. That God is communicating with people and, and a lot, oftentimes... He would use dreams. This is why these two prisoners, when they have these dreams, aren't just like, hey, I had a funny dream last night, you want to hear about it? No, they're troubled by them because they see them as a little bit more weighty than what we would look at them today. They're, they're troubled, they're dejected by what they've seen in their dreams. So in comes Joseph. Now Joseph has a history of dreams. He had a few of them himself, and, and last time he started speaking about these dreams, it got him thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, it didn't go, out, it didn't go well for him. So what would happen if Joseph, now hearing these dreams, starts speaking into these dreams again to people that are influential in Egypt, even if they are prisoners? Well, that didn't stop Joseph from, from being bold and, and asking for these dreams. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. I think Joseph makes a statement of faith here. 
I don't have an interpretation. Interpretations, they belong to God. He's the one that can interpret these dreams. You're, you're greatly troubled and distressed. You can turn to God. He is the one who can give interpretations. It's clear that although Joseph has been in prison, that he has not been alone in prison, that God has been with him, and that there's some faith in him. That is, that God seems to have been growing him, maturing him, working in his life to up this point to where he comes to these two men who have dreams. And he doesn't hold back. He doesn't hesitate. He said, God can give these interpretations. We read a book as pastors once called The Insanity of God. And in it, one of the stories that the author shares is of a house church leader in China. As you know, the the, the Chinese house churches have been under persecution a lot in their history. And he said this to him. He says, do you know what prison is for us? He said, it is how we get our theological education. Prison in China is for us like seminary is for training church leaders in your country. Seems like Joseph knew that kind of training. And he didn't have the the greatest education around him except for that God was with him in prison. And when you have God and nothing else, you have all. You have more than someone who has everything and God. You have just the same. Think about how bold and how backwards it would be to these Egyptians that Joseph is saying to them. Does not interpretation belong to God? Here's two influential Egyptians that had been well-schooled, well-trained. They would have been used to, especially in the royal court, to, if you have a dream, if you have something greatly troubling, you're calling the wise men and magicians, and we're going to see Pharaoh's going to do it in a little bit. They would have had access to some of these professionals. And here we have this Hebrew, Hebrew slave who starts talking about some god, and he says that that one's going to give them interpretation. Do you see how bold that, that statement from Joseph would have been? Now in the Bible, before we get into these crazy thoughts about dreams and interpretations, maybe you have that gift, maybe you don't. But in the Bible, there are only two that ever interpret dreams. Two Israelites that interpret dreams. And they were both, Joseph and, and Daniel, there are a lot of parallels in their stories, but they were both in foreign lands, they were both under pagan kings, and they were both in locations, Egypt and Babylon, where divination flourished. It was relied on. It was looked to often. It was often practiced. And so here we have in these two foreign places with uh, foreign rulers that love divination, we have the people of God speaking. And it seems as if God specifically has landed those people in the right spot to, to give a prophetic voice. To speak into the, the idolatry and the, the falsehood of their time and of their location. It seems as if God puts them there to prophetically speak, to say this, what Joseph says, that interpretations belong to God. Not to whatever you're trusting when. There's only one God. And interpretations belong to Him. And what's most important is not hearing from whatever sources you're looking to, but, but from hearing from Him, from believing in Him. And so Joseph recognizes God's role. In these two prisoners' lives. That both are greatly troubled. That both have these dreams that they can't uh, explain or comprehend. And Joseph says that interpretations belong to God. And he goes even further. He asks them for the interpretations and they speak to him and then he's going to speak back. So in verse 9, the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches and as soon as it budded, Its blossom shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So Joseph says to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. 
And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So the bakers are probably salivating this line. Great, this is good news. Like we got good news from this dream. Let's let Joseph bring me good news as well. But the chief baker, he saw the interpretation was favorable, and he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered him and said, This is his interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, it just so happens... He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Joseph speaks prophetically and these two dreams with two interpretations and two fulfillments all happen. Joseph Fulfilling this prophetic role, saying interpretations belong to God, knowing that God is the one who's given the interpretations, that he trusts in God, he's placing his faith in God, and exactly what God had given to him happens to these two men. And he only makes one request in the middle of this. Remember me. Don't forget me. I've been here for a while. I shouldn't be here in the first place. I did nothing to be in this prison. Remember me when you get out of here. And by the providence of God, once again, there's breadcrumbs all over this. It just so happens that there's this birthday party for Pharaoh where one is lifted up as the interpretation comes true and Joseph's only request would have been, Remember me. And here's the conclusion we get from that. Verse 23 says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Likely the the, the cupbearer had been wrongly accused. Perhaps they're wrapped up in some sort of conspiracy where they're trying to kill or poison the Pharaoh. So maybe he's wrongly accused that he got moved from the prison all the way back up to the chief cupbearer again. So likely he had done nothing wrong and then had been restored. So if anybody in this whole story should be able to identify with being unjustly treated, with being thrown in prison for the wrong reason, it should have been this guy. So when Joseph says, here's your interpretation, that's a pretty good gift to him. He's used greatly troubled. And when he says, like, please remember me. I'm, unhe- I'm here for an unjust reason. I, I didn't deserve to be here. They shouldn't have put me in this prison. Just remember me. Mention me to Pharaoh. If anybody should be able to identify with that plea, it should have been this man. But he forgets. And once again, Joseph is on the wrong side of justice and is forgotten in prison. A prison he shouldn't be in in the first place. And Joseph's time in prison isn't short. So after two years, there's, there's a glimmer of hope that has been just snuffed out by this man forgetting him. And two years later, he still waits. And that's where we pick up in, verse, in chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. 
And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams... But there was none who can interpret them to Pharaoh. So it just so happens, we have another dream a couple years later. And Pharaoh has two dreams and they, they greatly troubled him. This sounds familiar, right? Nebuchadnezzar had some dreams like this in Babylon where he was greatly troubled by his dreams. So he, he's looking for answers. And there's, there's many reasons why these dreams would, would trouble a king. Like he is in charge of things. And so you would think that even some sinful ways that he'd be troubled by this. He he wants his own glory. He wants his own renown. He wants his own fame. And and he doesn't like to be troubled by by dreams, especially where he feels outside of his own control, where he feels like he can't control things, where he feels like something else might be exerting something over me that I don't like. So there's lots of reasons why this might have troubled him. He doesn't have an interpretation. He doesn't know what it might mean. He might have pressures. He might feel like something's coming. I have pressure as the king to provide for my people. I have a responsibility before them. I have a standing before these gods that we worship. So maybe I'm out of balance with the the grain god or whatever it might be. Like All these reasons might be pouring into this Pharaoh's mind as he's troubled by these two dreams that he has. And he's so troubled that he doesn't delay, that he calls in the professionals to give an explanation for what's going on. And the best magicians and wise men in the world, they come in, and what do they do? There was none, it says, who could interpret them to Pharaoh. All the greatest magicians and wise men that Pharaoh could conjure up, could bring in, failed. Couldn't give an interpretation. They had no explanation. Nebuchadnezzar in, in the book of Daniel had the same problem. Like no one could give him the answer to his dreams. And in the most troubling and hardest of times, the wisest, the most religious, the greatest ones who can conjure dreams and give you interpretations, all the, the mystics of the world, they have nothing to offer. They fail. Don't we know this to be true in our own lives? I mean, think about the... the the harsh stuff of life when we're greatly troubled and distressed. What, what brings that kind of stuff on? Now, the explanations are, are really hard. Think of death. We'll just mention one, death. The finality of death. The brutality of it. The lack of discrimination with death. All of those things can be so deeply troubling. They leave so many question marks. So many stresses and anxieties upon us as we try to ponder it out. Now in kindergarten... We used to get grades. You got S for satisfactory, U, unsatisfactory, or N for needs improvement. And all of the answers that the magicians and the wise men of Egypt give, they get a grade of U or N. Right? They are unsatisfactory or they need improvement. They do not help the problem. And we can say the same thing for all of the answers in the world that they have to offer us. Like, you get a U for that. Because we're still greatly troubled and you have given us no answer. You need some improvement with that answer because it's not helping us in the deepest troubles when death or some other deep trouble faces us. The answers that all the world has to offer to us will not be enough. They're not going to answer. We need to know what Pharaoh found out, what Nebuchadnezzar found out, that there's only one who can make sense of life. And in the most troubling places where there's a barrage of questions that attack mercilessly, 
None can answer except our God. There's no satisfactory answers apart from the knowledge of God. He created us. He made us. He made our minds. He knows our dreams. He created our very being, our brains, everything. He's wired them all together. He was there in the beginning. In fact, you say He was there before the beginning. He knows how it all works. He's the only one that can make sense of life. And so if you're looking for answers and explanations, the place to turn is to this God. All the wise men of the world, all the magicians, whatever you can conjure, they have some power and some answers and some knowledge we don't deny, but they can't answer the questions of life. Not in a way that's satisfactory or that doesn't need improvement. Only our God. And we are among those who are most blessed because we have access to the knowledge of God. Right here in His Word, with one another, we have access to these kind of answers. And Pharaoh gains that kind of access too. And here's how he does it. Verse 9. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Finally, what a jerk. Finally, he remembers. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And so Pharaoh sent, and he called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Think about this. Had, had Joseph been restored two years earlier, the opportunity wouldn't have been there. To speak to Pharaoh, to interpret a dream. Breadcrumbs all over this thing, Right? He would have missed the opportunity that something else is going on. That God is at work doing something more than just giving interpretation to the dream. And there's a sense you get of how deeply troubled Pharaoh is by this dream. That he's willing to just, alright, some Hebrew slaves in prison and has been there for years. And you're going to call him up? And he's going to give me answers? You can see how troubled he is. And you say, alright, bring him and bring him now. Let's go get this done. I need to know the answer to this. And so he's brought in quickly. And we pick up in verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. And I've heard it said of you that you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered to Pharaoh. Think of the context. Like this is a Hebrew slave to the king. And what does he say to him? It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Joseph is very quick to admit his own inability. Like, Pharaoh just brought you up so that you could be the answer and give some answers. And you're saying, no, I can't do it. But instead he points to God's sufficiency. God can do it. The prison has taught Joseph a lot. So out of all the wise men and the magicians in Egypt, none can interpret. But but Joseph comes along and he says to Pharaoh, there's one who can. It's not me. But I know this guy. God can give interpretations. He can do this. He is sufficient. So he, he listens to Pharaoh retell his dream. And then he speaks. And we're going to pick up in verse 25. Joseph says to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And the, the seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. And the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will rise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. 
And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. This is a bold interpretation. Even if, even if Joseph is right, he just told the king that you're going to face seven really, really hard years. So in other words, he's not bringing good tidings. Now, this is a bold move for him to continue on in this and say, this is what's going to happen. Even if he's right, this is bold. And so Joseph is willing to speak prophetically as one who is sure of his God. That if God is the one who gives interpretations, he trusts him. He's saying, even if it's bad, I trust God. I'm going to give him the interpretation that God gives to me. And so he speaks boldly as one who is certain that God is the one who gives interpretations. And think about what's going on here. He's saying there's going to be good years, there's going to be bad years. He's saying God, God is the one who can control those things. In other words, Joseph is certain that God is sovereign. And that when he says there's going to be a famine, and he says there's going to be plenty, it's not because he had checked the weather patterns. He didn't say, like, I don't know, let's, let's check what the locusts have been doing lately. Like, is there a great swarm of them or not? No, he says, like, this is what God has shown, and we know that God is sovereign, and He can bring this about. And so he gives the interpretation to Pharaoh. And he, he knows that if God is not the sovereign one, then, then none of this works. He's risking it all on God, and, and it seems like Joseph trusts him. And he gets even more bold, because he goes beyond just the interpretation itself, and he starts giving advice to Pharaoh as a Hebrew slave who just got out of prison. It's a bold move. Verse 33. He says, Now therefore let Pharaoh, let him select someone and set him over the land of Egypt. And let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over all the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of the Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So he gives the interpretation, and then he gives the solution to the problem. Like, a slave to a king. Like, here's what you need to do. Here's what's going to need to happen. That there's going to be all these years, years of famine and years of, produce, years of plenty and produce. Like, here's what we're going to do. So all those many years that Joseph is, is sitting in prison, is in Potiphar's house, all those time in Egypt that Joseph has spent there, we know that God has been giving him wisdom. That God has been blessing his life and has been with him. And so he's willing to, to when the opportunity comes, like he steps up and he's bold and he speaks out of the wisdom that God had given to him. And the risk pays off because Pharaoh recognizes there's something different in Joseph. And he says so in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Why? He said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, 
priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt from the, the prison to now Pharaoh's number one man, the, the prime minister, his right hand man. And you might have noticed that here, in, instead of being unclothed and thrown into a pit, or unclothed and thrown into prison, here he's treated justly, it seems. He's, he's clothed. He's honored. He's vindicated. Finally, all of this because of the good and providential care of God. Right? God had ordered all these events up to this. Joseph didn't make it happen. Joseph didn't make these two guys dream. Joseph didn't get into prison because of his own wrong actions. Joseph didn't give Pharaoh a dream. He just trusts in the Lord. And the Lord ordered the events to raise Joseph from the prison all the way up to Pharaoh's prime minister. And so as we speak about, about the good and providential care of God, we see it all over this passage. It's everywhere. But when we think about it, we need to be reminded that God doesn't work like us. Reading the story of Joseph on the page sounds great. We love this kind of story. You went from the bottom to the top. You went from being the the favored one. We liked that. Then you were thrown into a pit. We didn't like that. You went to Potiphar's house and you were blessed. We liked that. Yes. Back down to the bottom again. No. Back up again. Love that story. Look at all that God has brought him through. Isn't God so good? Who wouldn't love this story? But this story has been a long time in the making. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he had entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Great! He made it by the time he was 30. This is awesome. Dream dream come true, right? But he's been there a long time. If you turn back to chapter 37, verse 2, said that Joseph being 17 years old, I remember in chapter 37 that that was the time that he was thrown into a pit and sold into Egypt. So we have have a, a long time in Egypt. Alright, 13 years of time in Egypt. Joseph spent 13 years there. That's a large chunk of life. Many of them spent in prison. If he wasn't in prison, he was somebody's slave. Zero of those years or of those days have been free. Zero. 13 years, Joseph suffered injustice. He was sold because he was the favorite of his father. He was put in prison because he did the right thing and left Potiphar's wife. 13 years of injustice. 13 years of doing the right thing and no vindication. 13 years of waiting. God, what are you doing here? Where are you at in the midst of this? Like, when am I going to get what's right? Man, we can't even write, wait 13 seconds. If you get some messed up signal on your phone, you can't even wait 13 seconds. You're like, oh my gosh, this is so slow. 13 years. That's a long time. Where was God in the middle of that 13 years? We kind of skipped over it in the story a little bit. Like we, we read some of it. 13 years. Where was God in the middle of this? What is He doing? Joseph should not have been here. As the people of God, we should have seen that. Like, God, what are you doing? Your servant is languishing in prison. What are you doing? But God was with him. So I don't think Joseph was complaining like that. And God was writing a bigger story. And we get to read it. We get to see what God was doing. Because in one moment, in every moment, God is doing a million things at once. And about 99,000 of them plus, 999,000 of them, we don't know what they are. And this is what he's been doing all through Joseph's story. A million things that we don't get to see. But we get to see some of them. 
And so Joseph, as he, as he prepares for, for what's next, as he has this authority behind him, we, we get to see how Joseph moves forward. So verse 46, Joseph went out from the presence of the Pharaoh. He went through all the land of Egypt. And during the, the seven and the, the, the plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food in the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Joseph is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. Think of the faith just associated with, with storing up grain. Now you're taking people's grain away from them, because you're, you're, you're planning on, you're banking on some, some years of famine ahead. If there aren't years of famine, this is, a, this is a dumb move. This is not wise, and it probably made the people angry. But here's Joseph. He has all the authority. He's storing up this grain. He's preparing, certain that God will bring it about, certain that the famine will come, even led up to this by, by God's faithfulness in bringing a lot of plenty and produce. So God has already proven part of the interpretation to be true, and He continues to bless Egypt and give them great abundance. But we get this side note in here too, that that Joseph is blessed. Verse 50, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, and Asenath, the the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, she bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph, in a foreign land, with a foreign wife, speaking a foreign language, whose, whose wife is from a, a foreign priest's daughter, with all this stuff around him that's foreign, 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 Joseph names his sons Hebrew names. Now you're the leader of a foreign land, and you're bold enough to come in here and name your children Hebrew names. Now, he has not forsaken the God of his fathers or his father's house. And instead, he even continues to trust and praise in this God. But then the famine comes. Verse 53, the seven years of, of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. So winged by God's gracious dream interpretation, Joseph's wisdom is saving the people of Egypt. Famine is, is hard for us to, to fathom, but, but, but notice other places in the Scripture where, where there's famine. What are they doing? Where they're, where they're cut off from food. Right? They're, they're eating dung, it says a few times. Right? They're, they're cooking children. Like this is what, they're, they're pushed to desperation. And yet Joseph is this one who is wisely prepared by the, by the faith that he has in God. And he is, is saving them, delivering from that sort of desperation. So God has sovereignly ordained these events to happen just as He said they would. And Joseph is this man who's being who's used instrumentally to save so many people as He is providentially placed in Egypt. And it's more than just Egypt. Verse 57 says this, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. 
So, so Joseph's grain that he has been saving up is, is not just delivering Egypt, it is delivering so many more people than that. It's, it's delivering the known world. Everyone around them that is struggling is starving. Like they're running to Joseph to find aid. The whole earth is under famine. Many are in danger of those kind of atrocities that we talked about that happen in famine. This is an ugly affair. And where are they turning for help? They're turning to Joseph. They're coming from all over to Joseph in Egypt who has stored up grain where there is bread, where there's place for them to find sustenance. And so the, the famine had spread beyond Egypt to all the known earth, and Egypt is being used to save people all over. Surely this would have included a land that's not too far from Egypt, right? A land that we, we left some people at. The, the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants where Jacob and his sons dwell. The famine surely, and we'll see this land, had spread to that land as well. They're in desperation. They're in great need. Where are they going to turn? They're coming to Egypt. They're going to turn to Joseph. So undoubtedly, as we, so in this chapter, the, this chapter is meant to color all the ways that we view the rest of the stuff that we just read in Genesis. This point where Joseph is saving, not just Egypt, but, but places all over, including the promised land, is meant to color how we look back at Joseph's 13 years in prison. 13 years as a slave in Egypt. Because God was up to something the entire time. It wasn't just Joseph was suffering unjustly and we're watching his story play out. God was doing something more than that. His timing brought all this about. In the book of Esther, you might remember, the people of God are in exile. They're in Babylon. Which is bad news from the beginning. right? This is not how the people of God are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be in exile. They're not supposed to be in Babylon, but they're in both. They have a foreign ruler. They have another king over them. And we have the story that centers around this, this woman, whose name is Esther, who, who is an orphan. She doesn't have a mom and dad. So I, all over the story, saying like, everything is off, everything is bad, everything is not going the way it's supposed to be going. All is bad. And we read the first chapter of Esther, and what happens? The king, he's kind of a crazy man. His wife, he summons her, she doesn't come, he has her killed. This is, this is all bad. Foreign people, foreign land... Strange ruler kills his wife. All this does not seem to be right. But what happens? Remember the story? Queen Esther comes along. Esther. And she's the one who's chosen out of all the women. She's chosen to be the queen. And it just so happens that at that time there was a wicked man who wanted to kill all the Israelites. He, he, he developed this plot and even got it approved by the king that we're going to destroy. We're going we're to kill every single one of them. We're going we're gonna to unleash fury upon these Israelites. It just so happened that happened at the time that, that Esther is the queen. And so when they find out about it, her uncle Mordecai finds out about it first and is speaking to her about this. Saying, we're going to be killed unless something happens. And, and here is what he tells Esther in Esther chapter 4. He says, and, and who knows? Brother, you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's all these evil, wicked things that are happening. All these events that have surrounded this. And he suggests, maybe, maybe God has placed you here for such a time as this to rescue the people of God. Joseph. God was ordering, directing, providentially working to place Joseph as the prime minister in Egypt for such a time as this. 
There'd be famine in all the land, and even the people of God would be in trouble. Joseph was in prison, and he was in charge of these prisoners where Pharaoh's servants happened to come, who both have dreams at the same time. Then he was forgotten for a couple years. Then Pharaoh, he, he, he has this dream too, and all of a sudden Joseph gets brought back into the mix. All of that stuff was guided by God's providence. All of it God is ordering so that Joseph could be at the helm at such a time as this, where there's famine in all the land, and everybody needs food. No one, not one of us, would have looked to any of those things. Joseph being in prison, Joseph in Egypt said, Oh good, God's working. I'm so glad. None of us would have. But in all of it, God was working. Amen. In all of it, He was there. In all of it, He was to be praised. Because God was working and was with Joseph as much as He was in prison as He's in the palace. Amen. And He was using every single bit of it. God is so good. He is sovereign. And His invisible hand is ordering the universe to take care of His own, which Joseph is now doing. He's going to save the people of God. And the people of God, Israel, reading this originally, us here today, the people of God for all time need to read this and learn what we are meant to learn. And that is that we can trust this God. No no matter the sight. You could be in Egypt, in Enid, to the ends of the earth. God is working. No matter the issue. It could be famine. It could be a prison. You could be unjustly treated. No matter what the issue is, God is with us. No matter who the leader is. Whether it's our president. Whether it's a Pharaoh. Whether it's a foreign ruler. All these things. God is working. And He will take care of His people. Over and over and over again. You see all these breadcrumbs in the story of God doing what? Working to take care for and provide for His people that they might be saved. That they would trust Him. That no matter what is going on, He can do what He needs to do to protect and save His people. The the people of God, all of us who who have trusted in Christ, we we can be distinct from the world in this and that we, we lack worry. Because we trust God. Thrown into prison... Treated unjustly, taken to a foreign land, our God has it all in His hands. All this difficult stuff that we, that we see around us, like God has it all. He, he's ordering it all. He can work it. And, and what's so hard about this is we can't see it. We can't trace this. Providence is this invisible hand that writes across history and we, we can't see it. It takes faith. And I love this quote. From Spurgeon, it says this, that the worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him when he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. You might have heard that when you, when you can't see his hand, you know, trust his heart. That's quoted to Spurgeon. This is the actual quote. It's better, I think. Get rid of that one. Replace it with this one. That when he trusts him where he cannot trace him. And he looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes what? That all all is well. And that's what this story is teaching us. That we can trust God no matter what's going on. So we can refuse to worry because we have a God who's in control. Because we know God's character. We're starting to see him more and more as this God who's providentially taking care of his people through all these different circumstances. That builds our trust and our faith in this God. This is who he is. This is what we are following. And we can refuse to worry as as Joseph because we know that he's with us. So as Joseph knew God's presence in prosperity and adversity, we too can refuse to worry because we know that God is with us. He said he'd be with us to the end of the age. 
as Joseph was given this interpretation before the court, we're like, well, we can't do that. We better worry if we're brought before kings, but I think Jesus says not to. When you, they deliver you over. When, that's an interesting phrase. Don't be anxious. How are you to speak or what you're to say? For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And as Joseph went through prison all the way back up to ruling in the palace, we too are assured that God will do the same for us. You have to be careful with this. People like to use this one really in a bad direction. We have to be careful here because I, I don't mean that if you trust God in this life, that God will deliver you from whatever prison you're in and put you in any palace you want. Not what I mean. I think you know that. Sojourn, we're pretty clear on that. But for all of those who trust in God, right now, if you are trusting in God, the here and now is as bad as it will ever get for us. No matter what you go through, like this is as bad as it's going to get. Maybe your life is 90 years, 100 years, whatever. This is as bad as it will ever get and you have something better looking, you're looking forward to. And that our God is ordering every single detail of this entire thing and He's leading to a certain end. Those who trust in God, we, we believe that God is, is, we're heading in a direction. That we're not just wandering aimlessly throughout history. We're going in a direction. That direction is pointed by God. That in the end, all of those who are aligned with the true King, who have trusted in Him, they're going to be exalted. From whatever low position that we have here, we're going to be exalted. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you there. Amen. He says, you're going to reign. You're going to reign together with Christ. He says you're going to be heirs, co-heirs with Christ. All these are truths from the Scripture. And so, yes, I would say that just like Joseph, as we believe in God, we will be delivered from the prison to the palace one day. Not here now, one, one day. So why is the spotlight on Joseph? To show us something about God. To show us His amazing care, His, His providential hand working through the pages of history that we might trust Him in all circumstances and places. Before us is a meal, we call it the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded of these exact same things. That the history isn't just wandering aimlessly, that God Himself is ordering all things, and that He came. That God took on flesh. That He dwelt among us. That He lived this perfect life in obedience to every single aspect of the law. Every dot and every iota, Jesus fulfilled it all. Why? That He might present Himself to His Father as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And He has ordered up history up until that point to, to bring us Christ that we might be forgiven of our sins. So this meal is a reminder that the God is providentially working. That Jesus has come. That He's laid down His life. That he's, he's, His body has been broken. His blood has been spilled. That we might have forgiveness of sins and a hope for that palace in the future. Where we reign with Christ and live forever with Him. So if you're a believer, we, we want you to come in, in confidence and faith. Enjoy. Take this meal. Tear a piece of bread. Take the juice. Be reminded that, that God's got this thing. He's ordering it all. And that you can be united with Him by your faith. And that He's coming again. If you're not a believer, don't take this meal. Please, stay seated. Instead, we say, take Jesus. If you know what that looks like, find a believer. Come talk to us. We'd love to share with you what it looks like to receive Christ. But don't take this meal. Believers, come and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your providential care. Your goodness is all over every single page of the Word. We don't understand. We don't see it sometimes. It's difficult to see Your hand in prison. But 
thankfully, you have written down some of Joseph's story that we might look back and say, even in the prison you were working. And you had something in mind, something good for your people, their protection, their provision. So God, I don't know where we're at in our lives individually. There's, there's lots of scenarios in here. But God, I pray that all of us would trust you. We, where we don't see you, may we know that all is well because of your work, because of your nature, because of what you have done. God, I pray for believers to come and joy and take a part of this meal in faith and be encouraged by one another's faith as we're saying, like we're staking it all in Christ. That He is going to come again or this meal is worthless. God, we know that's not true. And so may we come in joy. For unbelievers, God, Paul, I pray that you would bring them in. Draw their hearts to yourself. Show them your goodness. Show them your mercy. And God, may they be transformed. Repent and believe in the gospel. God, thank you for your people and for this meal before us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.